Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for your word, for the word as you have spoken to us, to us in many and various ways, but most especially through your Son. And now, Lord, as we um, study that word given to us in the book of Hebrews, pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, give us understanding that we might be able to search out the things freely given to us by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sisyphean. This is your word of the day here. Sisyphean, adjective of a task, such that it can never be completed. <laughs> Anybody familiar with the, the background, the mythological background of this? David, tell us about the... Sisyphus says pushing the rock up the hill. That's right. He gets to the top and, oh, it slips off. It rolls right back down. Sisyphus is, is condemned with this task where he just has to roll a big old boulder up a hill over and over. And every time he thinks he gets to the top, it rolls right back down. Uh, yeah, Margo. How about meal planning? <laughs> meal planning. Never ends. A Sisyphean <laughs> task. Yeah. What are some other Sisyphean tasks that you undertake or have undertaken? Housework. Housework. Tom, is that what you said too? Oh, milk and cows. <laughs> the milk just keeps coming. Laundry. Laundry, oh Lord. Yes, talk about a Sisyphean task. Yeah. Brushing your teeth. Goes with our men's guild conversation the other day, right? Yeah. Other Sisyphean tasks? There's too many to list, right? Yeah. Grocery shopping, because you always forget that one item. Yep, you always forget one item. As soon as you get home, ah! Yep, There's, there are many out there, and it can, it can make life feel futile at times. But I'm here to tell you, friends, that life itself is not a Sisyphean task because of our Lord Jesus. And this, uh, of course, he doesn't use the term here in Hebrews, uh, but really this is what he's talking about. He's showing us why, ultimately, life is not Sisyphean in that sense, because Jesus has made the once-for-all sacrifice, because he has made the conclusive offering, because in him... All things hold together. So let's dig in. We're picking up at verse 11 of chapter 9. Let me start by reading that first paragraph from verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Whew. So much here. So, in many ways, this is the climax of an argument that's gone back a couple of chapters in this movement of the book of Hebrews. And where we left off last week, you remember he gave, uh, the, the preacher gave us this analogy, this architectural analogy, looking at the old tabernacle, that there was the holy place and the most holy place. And he said, symbolically speaking, the Old Testament people were in the holy place, the place of the, the workaday world for the priests. But that now, through Christ, the curtain has been opened and who, there was once upon a time just one man who went once a year, the great high priest, the high priest is the one who went back in there after the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He says, now 
The curtain has been torn, it's been open, and what was once reserved for one person once a year now is given to all of us as the priesthood of the baptized, the privilege to come into the throne room of God Most High. Woo! He says, that's, that's what we need. That's what we want more than anything else. And thus, there's a lot of work being done by this one little three-letter word, but, in verse 11. He says, but when Christ appeared. Because what he's expressing just with that little word, but, is that number two on your handout, the coming of Christ is the hinge of history. The coming of Christ is the hinge of history. When Jesus comes, everything changes. Everything changes. And I appreciate how he puts this in such a modest way when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Oh, the good things that have come. Just kind of open-ended. I want to take just a moment and let's just enumerate. What are some of the good things that have come since Christ appeared? Salvation. Salvation. Top of the list, right? And with salvation, you know, I'm picturing like a computer folder, right? You double-click on it and then you got the more subfolders, <laughs> right? So underneath salvation, you have... Redemption. You have redemption. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. We can go right to God's throne without an intermediator. There's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. So now we offer prayers to the Father in his son Jesus. Yeah, other good things that have come. Simplicity. Simplicity. How so? Well, I don't have to kill an animal every day. <laughs> <laughs> I may, especially if it's a weasel. Um, you can talk with Becky about that, but yes. You know, just as soon as you get the one sacrificed, you... Right. Say a bad word or think of being gone. There you got to go kill him. There you got to go. Right. (laughs) The simplicity of the salvation we have in Christ. Very good. Now think in bigger picture too. Not just of these um, spiritual blessings, which are innumerable and rich, but think also just in terms of um, cultural life, life in the world. What are some of the, the blessings that have come as a result of the coming of Christ and the extension of the gospel into the world? What are some of those things? Well, let's talk about one. How about science, the practice of science? Now, how could that be? Because, and I'll just utterly simplify the narrative, but because Christ has come, we're able to recognize the world aright as God's good creation, distinct from God the creator, and yet connected to him. And therefore, we're able to look into the world, not as just some capricious, arbitrary emanation from the beings, which is how it was often understood, certainly in Eastern religions and also to a certain extent within Greco-Roman religion. But we're able to look at it as God's good world that can be understood and, and read. Science and the practice of science is in many respects a f- flows from the gift of salvation and Christ coming into the world. What else? Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Healthcare and hospitals. Great. There's St. Luke's Mercy Trinity Hospital. Yes. And like Mother Teresa, when she went, where did she go, India? Yeah. She had a hard time because in their religion, they were supposed to suffer. Yes. The cast. Have to pen- they wouldn't have to make a penance in the next life. That's right. Yeah. And so Sally brings up a great point. Healthcare. We think, oh, well, just is always there. 
And again, it was through the, the mission and ministry efforts, the compassion care of Christians. I mean, the first nurses were deaconesses. Folks who were, were just getting out and attending to the sick and the ill and the need, the injured. Um, and then it expanded from there into hospitals and still to this day. Many hospitals are under the auspices of, of Christian ministries and organizations. Yes, Sarah? Education for Education, all. education for all. And this is something especially out of the Reformation, right? Part of the heirs of, of the Reformation. Martin Luther said, wait a second. The Bible is the book that belongs to every single believer. And so he was adamant. One of the first things he did, of course, was to translate the scriptures into the language of the common man. And then it was, we need to teach people to read so that they can read their Bible, right? Literacy, worldwide literacy, a result of the gospel, the movement of the kingdom. Yeah, George. Um, I've read uh, a fair amount about medical history. Yeah. And um, Christianity really helped, uh, grew quite a bit during... The Black Death, the plague. Yes. And the Christians were the only ones that stayed back. Right. With the people. Right. And they became, you know, people recognized they're there to help. Yes. The rich people and the kings and that, sure. they ran away. Right, right. But Christians were the ones who stuck around, yeah. who had that kind of staying power, it made a huge difference. Yeah, Bob. Human rights, the dignity of human beings, both living and dead. Yes. Oh, well put. The... Human rights and the dignity of the human beings, living and dead. Again, this is something that we think, we just take it for granted. Oh, we, we hold these things to be self-evident. That self-evident nature of it is a gift. It's self-evident because we're looking at things with the eyes of faith. Like Sally said, from other, uh, in other religions and other cultures, these things are not self-evident. What's self-evident is that some people are of a higher caste and a lower caste. That some people are suffering for their sins. That's self-evident, they would say. We say, wait, no, what's now evident because of, we look through the eyes of faith and we see that every single individual is created in the image of God. Human rights, as we know it, are also a gift, part of the patrimony of the gospel and its influence and effect throughout the world. The things that are not commonly recognized. We think, oh, it's just always there. Friends, it's not. And something that'll keep you awake at night if you're looking for something else to keep you up at night <laughs> is to think about the extent to which as faith and, and Christianity recedes, especially in our Western culture, how far behind will human rights be? And especially care for the most vulnerable, say at either end of the lifespan and elsewhere in between. Because we think, well, you know, survival of the fittest, right? Uh, it's, it can be a disturbing thought. God is faithful. The world is in his hands. We trust the creator. Uh, but it's certainly grist for the prayer mill. Right. We can go on and on. The good things that have come in and through Christ Jesus, and they continue still to this day. So then, he continues on. The preacher continues to talk about how this redemption that we have in Christ is an eternal redemption. It's not a temporary one. It's not one that dries up or flitters away every time another sin is committed. But it's an eternal uh, redemption. And why is that? We give at least three reasons from the, the text here. First of all, Jesus didn't merely enter the tabernacle, but he entered heaven itself, the more perfect tent, as the preacher puts it, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Christ Jesus went into the abode of the heavenly Father. Secondly, he offered not an animal, which even when they got an unblemished lamb, still it was not going to be perfect, perfect, perfect. He himself 
is offered as the perfect sacrifice. And then thirdly, let us not forget, he lives. He lives. Our Lord is a living Lord. And so he is the living sacrifice for us. And because he continues to live, as we um, read back in chapter 7, he lives forever to make uh, intercession before the Father. Therefore, you and I can be saved to the uttermost. Remember that word? To the uttermost, because he still lives for you and me. Thus, we have this eternal redemption. The fourth reason that he gives, which I broke out into another uh, number here, is that when our conscience is cleared, we serve God and our neighbors well. The preacher grants that under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, yes, there was some purification for the flesh. It's not that those sacrifices (laughs) didn't do anything, but they were always going to be temporary. They were always going to be mere band-aids, where what we needed was that deeper uh, cleansing. We needed not just the flesh, but our very consciences, our inmost self, to be purified. And I put it this way, that when our conscience is cleared, we serve God and our neighbors well. This was a big emphasis for, for Martin Luther. Because if you don't have a clear conscience before the Father, if you're continually anxious and addled with your sins and whether or not you're acceptable to God, how does that keep you from being able to serve well? If, you're, if you're, you're tied up in knots about your own you know, sinfulness and a, a guilty conscience, how, how does that keep you from being able to serve well? Yeah, Ellen? Because you're full of fear. Okay, you're full of fear. And you're not sure. Mm-hmm. And so you're not sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Bob? Yeah, I think especially not just toward God, but when we hurt our spouse or hurt our children, um, there can be a real question about my worthiness of continuing in that vocation. Sure. Am I really worthy to be able to continue? And, and so that it, can, it can lead you to a, a, that heavy burden of guilt that keeps you from being able to give of yourself again. Yeah, this is uh, it's a tricky thing that when we have that guilty conscience that weighs on us, we tend to just be focused on ourselves. You can't help but be focusing on yourself and how to make things right and, and to have that, that clearing. But now, because in Christ our conscience is made clear, the sin, the guilt has been lifted, now we're able to lift up our eyes and say, oh, wait a second, I don't have to worry about my own self. I don't need to just be staring at my own belly button all the time. I can look out and see the needs of my neighbors. Um, we alluded to this passage uh, last week or two weeks ago from Romans 8. It says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And notice this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The upshot, the goal of that redemption is that now finally you and I are able to live aright according to God's will. We heard in the gospel today, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law is rightly kept. When you and I are are walking by the Spirit, not worried about, wait a second, what were my motives there? Did I do a good enough job? You know, am am I sure that that's still acceptable to God? When instead we're able to live in the freedom of the gospel, it's like, you can serve well. Did I do it perfectly? No. Did I do it for the right motivations? That's one that always trips us up. Probably not. Can it still be work done well that glorifies your Father? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Chip. In a... A podcast, a uh, mocking cast. They were yep. talking about how 
in colleges, uh, they have uh, they don't have enough uh, mental health folks to help all the students that are coming in. And so when they come in and they don't have a therapist to meet them, they'll say, why don't you just first go volunteer some uh, place, go to the senior citizen home, go to the hospital, just get out and get out of your room, your dorm room, right. <laughs> go volunteer someplace. And like, most of them, they never hear from them again. Yeah. Because getting out of your head. Yeah. You know, and that, that might not necessarily be guilt or shame, or <laughs> but there's anxiety, there's I'm not enough, I'm not fitting in here, whatever it is. But being, getting outside and serving others, yeah. living with others, is a, a kind of a tonic to help that. Really is. You know. That's exactly right. Yeah, it really is. It can be a tonic and a curative to just, okay, I got to get out of my own head and just looking at myself and lift up my eyes and say, oh, wait a second, God has put good people in front of me. And what's tricky with the, you know, uh, when folks who have real issues that are, um, that they're struggling with, you tell them, you know, get out and serve, they might say, I, I can't, I'm incapacitated, you know. So it's not to say that there aren't sometimes Yeah, and they made that point on the podcast. Okay, yeah, yeah. There's needs, real mental health needs, but for anxious college kids yes, who are right. trying to figure out how to fit into the scene, yeah. get out of your room, get off your phone. Yes, that especially, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's, this is where we are now. Our conscience is cleared, and there's um, this hymn, it's a Lent hymn, um, that not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But now the stain's been washed away. In, in a few weeks, we've got transfiguration. And I think in uh, Mark's account of the transfiguration, he says that Jesus' clothes dazzled whiter than any worldly bleach could make them. <laughs> a laundry reference, interesting. Um, but such is the robe that we wear now, the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. As he has cleansed our conscience, we can go out into the world and serve. Okay, so that's kind of the, the key climactic moment. Now let's go into verses 15 through 22. We're just going to further delve into this, especially how it plays out in terms of us as heirs of God. Picking up in verse 15 then. Therefore... He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything's purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay. No blood, no forgiveness. That's just kind of an axiom um, for Old Testament people and still the preachers appealing to that. That's kind of the, the bottom line. No blood, no forgiveness. But what he says here is that, number five on your handout, because the blood of the firstborn, our Lord Jesus, because his blood is shed, the law's lien is lifted and God's children can receive the inheritance. See, he's working kind of analogically or metaphorically here, thinking about how 
Jesus, because he's the firstborn, the inheritance rightly belongs to him. But wait a second, there's kind of a lien against us because we have that debt of sin. Unless blood's been shed, that first debt has been paid, the lien lifted, then are we able to receive the inheritance. Does that metaphor kind of make sense? This is how how the preacher's trying to develop it here. If that doesn't work for you, here's a, um, a different but similar one from Romans 7. Paul says, don't you know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So there Paul is saying, listen, we have died in Christ. So you have died to the law. That first covenant is no longer binding on you. Those bounds have been released in Jesus, so that now you are free under this new covenant. This is where he's trying to, to drive us at. And to do so, he uses a little bit of a pun. That means an analogy and a pun. So I say, in true, in true preacherly fashion, right, the preacher unpacks the good news with a pun. Preacher jokes are a subset of dad jokes. <laughs> it's their own awful version of it. We heard one last week that you guys are still giving me a hard time about, which I will not repeat. Um, but uh, the, the way that he does it, so I want to draw your attention to this because uh, our translations, they do their best, but um, they kind of cloud this over a little bit. So um, verse 15, second half of verse 15, he says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, okay? And then immediately, verse 16, it goes on. He says, for, which suggests that the argument's continuing, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And you're like, wait a second, I thought we were just talking about covenants. What's a will have to do with anything? Well, the Greek word diatheke is used in both those places. Okay, so this is one of those words that has two meanings. We have all sorts of words like this in English, right? Where it's one word, kind of two different meanings, called homonyms, right? Uh, is that the right one, Ian? No. Okay. One word. one word, two meetings, homonyms, homophones. Okay, good. I phoned a friend, and we, we confirmed. Final answer. Um, so diatheke means both covenant and last will and testament. Now, there's similarities to these two words, but it, um, there's uh, a lot of differences, too. And he's kind of playing with its meaning. He's talking about the covenant, the diatheke, the first covenant, the old covenant. But now he's, to unpack that, he uses this analogy with this pun, this play on words, by talking about how diatheke is also a will, your last will and testament. Okay? You with me so far? How many of you have written a will? I'm sorry, I'm, I don't want to guilt anybody about this. Like, oh, yeah, that's a matter of... Yeah, maybe I should. <laughs> Side note, newcomer to our church, Megan Scott, I was visiting with her this week, and she's a lawyer who specializes in wills and estates and so forth. And she said, she said, if anybody from the church is interested in you know, working that out, talk to me, I'd be happy to do a workshop or something like that. So that may be coming down the pike, we'll see. Um, but in any event, you had a will. When does your will take effect? When you die, right? That's obvious common knowledge. When you die, that's when the will takes effect. It's true now, and it was true in the ancient world as well. This is also the case why this is often pointed out in the prodigal son. The 
parable of the prodigal son. Why what the younger son does is so offensive to the father because he wants his inheritance and his dad hasn't yet died. And so he's saying, in effect, to him, drop dead. I want, you know, I want an advance on my inheritance. Uh, not good. Not good. Um, you receive the will. The inheritance is distributed upon death. Now, what the preacher's going, where he's going with this, what he's saying is that, okay, there has to be a death for the will to take place, to take effect. Likewise, when it comes to the covenant, there had to be a death for it finally to be annulled or at least to be fulfilled. So that's what has happened for us through Jesus. So number seven on your handout. Just as a will is merely a piece of paper until there is a death, and he'll talk about blood also as kind of interchangeably with death here, blood being kind of a shorthand for, for death. So also in the case of a covenant. He points us back to Exodus 24, and he, he cites it here, so we need to go there. You can see the, the larger context there. But in Exodus 24, the ratification of the covenant that's done in Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, all that you have spoken, we will do, the people say. And Moses takes the blood, sacrifices the animals, sprinkles it on the people. And notice he says, the preacher quotes from it, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Well, he doesn't make the explicit connection here, but what does that sound like when he says that, those words? It sounds like the Lord's Supper, right? Absolutely. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in the upper room on the night when he was betrayed, this is my blood of the new covenant that has been shed for you. Jesus is explicitly invoking that first covenant and saying that now through his broken body, through his shed blood, now a new covenant is coming into effect for the forgiveness of sins, right? This was the, the point of that um, Jeremiah 8 quotation that we looked at last week, that now in Christ the slate is wiped clean. Now in and through him, God has forgotten our sins. And so we are forgiven by him as well. This is the blood of the new covenant that we have in him. More to say on those connections to the Lord's Supper in a moment, but questions or comments, the, it's, it's a little, the reasoning is tight, the logic is tight, it can be a little bit hard to unwind, but yeah, George. Uh, the word lean, I, I think, I don't think I've ever heard that in scripture. No, well, I mean. That's more of a, a, yeah. a lawyer's talk or a yes. baker? Yes, yeah. You'd say a baker. That's a good analogy. Yes. Oh, oh, banker, yes. Um, yeah, well, yeah, that's my, that's my way of thinking through it. That basically it's like, hey, there's still this, this debt that needs to be paid. Until we remove this lien, you can't take full possession of your inheritance, your heavenly inheritance. It had to be removed, and that's what Jesus has done. Yeah, Hans. Yeah, there was, a, in the Old Testament, a ban against drinking blood. Mm, yes. And now Moses is sprinkling blood on everything. Right. And, and is that a breaking of that band? Or? Well, as long as they weren't doing it with their mouths open, I guess. Um, <laughs> and sorry. You got blood all over this cup. Right. Okay, no. I'm just drink this. Um, no, I, I, no I, don't think it, I don't think it was. And I mean, that prohibition is made explicit in Leviticus. So, I mean, I guess you could say, oh, there's that loophole, as it were. But where I thought you were going to go with it is, well, how, how can Jesus say, this is my blood, yeah. should take and drink? 
Um, but it was pointing forward to. It was kind of that placeholder so that you don't look to the blood of bulls and calves to give you spiritual superpowers, which is how blood was kind of understood in the ancient world and still to this day among some what we call more animistic kinds of religions. You drink the blood. Whatever you drink the blood of, you get its life power. God's saying the only blood that you should be drinking is the blood of my son. That's the true life, right? Um, so, I mean, it was, it was holding until the time when he would be able to give his gifts in, in the Eucharist. Yeah, All this sprinkling, too, um, like Aaron and his sons are sprinkled specifically with blood. Um, the tent is sprinkled with blood. Everything that the blood is sprinkled upon is now being set aside for a specific holy service to the world mm. with God. Yes. There's an ordination going on, if you can use that word. Sure. An ordination of Aaron and his sons, an ordination of the people of God, an ordination of the tent and all its utensils. They're all set aside in a deliberate way for specific purposes by God. Yes. So it's not just we're brought into God's kingdom, which is sweet, but he's entrusting to us uh, a part of his heart for the world. Yeah. I used to ask people, you know God loves you. Do you believe that he trusts you? Which is a different question. Sure. And I think this blood is a statement of his trust. Yes. That it has consecrated us, made us clear, purified our conscience. But then the upshot of that is we're free to go out and serve. And we have, we have that vocation, that calling now. You say, well, so what's that vocation? Well, that's just what we were talking about today. Then now we go out as salt and light. Now we go out as those who, because we are, have our consciences purified, we can, with confidence, knowing that the Father's got our back. Say, I'm not sure I'm going to do a good job at it. That's okay. I think I'm going to mess up. You will. And he says, and I'm still going to use you, right? Because God's got our back. He trusts us. He doesn't just love you. He trusts you. Oh. And, you know, what wonder of wonders, guys? He likes you, too. <laughs> I know. You know, there's those people in your lives, you're like, I love them, not sure I like them, you know, second cousin, whatever. Uh, God not only loves you, he likes you, and he trusts you with this, with this vocation. But, indeed, grace is costly. I mean, this, the whole book of Hebrews makes this clear, and this passage especially emphasizes for us, no blood, no forgiveness, that grace is received, the grace that we receive is a costly grace. And I always look for any opportunity to, to quote from this celebrated passage from Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. He says, grace is costly because it calls to discipleship. It's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs people their lives. It's grace because it thereby makes them live. It's costly because it condemns sin. It's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God because it cost God the life of his son. It's a costly grace. One of those paradoxical concepts, but that's what we have in our Lord Jesus. All right, last uh, paragraph of this chapter, last section, verses 23 through 28. And here he's doing some summing up, some recapping. He says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every, every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. All right, so here the preacher's saying, summing up his argument, New Testament worship is real worship. And here I think a good connection, good cross-reference would be the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Remember when she starts to get a little bit nervous when he, he's bringing out some of her, her background and she's like, oh, you know, uh, our people worship over here. She's like just trying to change the conversation. And Jesus says, all right, you want to talk about worship? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So now, because Jesus has opened the curtain, now we are able to worship God in every place, in every way, gathered together in his spirit by faith. Boom. When we're gathered together as the fellowship on Sunday morning, worship can happen. But not only here, when you're out in your vocations, in your homes, now it's this traveling roadshow of the spirit that where you go, Luther said, not blaspheming, he says, you are little Christ's. You are little anointed ones because you bear the presence of Christ. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You can't take that off and put it on. You can't check it out. It's who you are, for better and for worse, right? You bear the name of Christ. It's like you, you wear on your back one of those Jesus fish bumper stickers all the time now, right? Um, it's, that's who you are. That's who you are. Um, so then... He kind of does that summation, but then introduces a little bit of a, a new theme, a new note here. When he says in verse 27, just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He doesn't introduce this idea of judgment in order to incite fear in the hearts of the people, but just to the contrary. He's saying, as a kind of truism, yes, you die once and then face judgment. He's saying, so also Christ has died, and he has endured the judgment of God on your behalf. God's wrath has been fulfilled and satisfied in his Son. There's a lovely verse here from John, 1 John 4. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The heart of the Father for you and me is that our hearts would be so overwhelmed with his love that it would drive out all the fear that remains. All those last lingering vestiges of wondering whether you're going to sit under the punishment of the Father, but to know wholeheartedly to the deepest lengths of our being, it's done. It's finished. Once for all, put away sin. Received you as his beloved child. 
that's, that's where he wants to lead us to, where he's bringing us to. The deeper we go into our, the union with our Heavenly Father, the more and more fear is driven out. There's just no room for it anymore. There's no room for it because the love of the Father has flooded our hearts and souls. So that now the, the thought, the prospect of Judgment Day becomes not bad news, but good. You guys, the second coming is good news. Let's all say that together. The second coming is good news. There's been a whole cottage industry of literature, books, movies over the last generation, which has sought to instill fear in the hearts of believers, not to mention the world, in the hearts of believers about the second coming of Christ. There are people walking around, maybe some of you, who were like traumatized from their youth because they were made to go through like haunted houses in which they found, you know, the, the empty clothes of their uh, family members because they had been raptured and you had been left behind, you dirty sinner. Right? Like, this is, this is bad theology. It's bad teaching. I'll just, I mean, I've talked about this before, but just to make it clear, once again, like the rapture, especially the way that the rapture is taught about in some sectors of, of Christianity today, it's just not what the scripture teaches, guys. God does not desire for you and me to stand in abject fear of the second coming of Jesus. When he comes again to judge the living and the dead, that's good news. Because when the judge comes, that means that he's putting his world to rights. It's not something for you and me to fear. Now, for those who have persisted in an obstinate, stubborn um, rebellion from God, yeah, there will be weeping and wailing. They will beat their breasts. When he comes with clouds descending, every eye shall see him. But you know what? Every knee also will bow down and profess him. You'll do it either gladly or he'll do it with, how to say? Knocking knees. With knocking knees and gritted teeth. (laughs) But every tongue will profess. You who have confessed him, professed him in this life, who trust in him, have nothing to fear, everything to gain and to look forward to with that day. Amen on that? Amen. Two last thoughts then. First, with respect to that will, the last will and testament. See, what we receive in the Lord's Supper, another way of thinking about the Lord's Supper, is that the Lord's Supper distributes the gifts of the Savior's inheritance. That when we recount uh, the, the words of the Lord's Supper, and his last, those words of our Lord, um, it's like reading the will off, right? And for each and every one of you, the riches of my kingdom, the glorious riches of my inheritance, as the scripture says, distributed now already as a foretaste through the son's body and blood. And Martin Luther would make much of this and say, listen, a will is fully and wholly gracious because the person has died. It's given. It's distributed, right? There's no more ifs, ands, and buts. There's no arguing with it. It's done. You're like, wait a second, but can I, can I earn that inheritance? No, you fool. <laughs> it's given to you gratuitously. And so it is with the supper. These are not, this is not re-sacrificing Jesus in order that repeatedly we might merit that forgiveness of sins. No, it's just the distrib- distribution of his gifts. Our book of Concord, which is our big fat Lutheran confession of faith, says at one point, now surely there's no interpreter of the words of Jesus Christ as faithful and sure as the Lord Christ himself who understands best his words and his heart and opinion. They're alluding to the the notion, which is still um, the practice today, that what's the, there's the fancy Latin phrase, that when you write a will, you have to do it in something mentis, in, you you know what I'm talking about, in clear mind, 
in copus mentis, we'll go with that. Um, <laughs> I'm making this will with clear mind, right? And, and clear hearts, clear eyes. And I'm doing that now. And so likewise, it's saying when Jesus does this, he's doing it with that kind of clarity. He's the wisest and most knowing for expanding them and expounding them. And here, as in the making of his last will and testament and of his ever abiding covenant and union, he uses not allegorical, but entirely proper, simple, indubitable, and clear words. I'm like, what is that? Indubitable. And in order that no misunderstanding can occur, he explains them more clearly with the words, given for you, shed for you. That's his last will and testament. That's what we receive in the Lord's Supper. The inheritance given to us already in anticipation to the fullness to be received in his kingdom. Then lastly, final thought. Because the great sacrifice lives, our Lord Jesus, we can offer living sacrifices. Because our sacrifice lives, we can offer living sacrifices. Paul says the seemingly paradoxical claim in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. Well, living sacrifice seems to be a contradiction in terms, right? But not for you and me, because the one sacrifice lives, our Lord Jesus and now we can lay down our lives in confidence that he will take it up once again. Amen? All right. Uh, thank you guys for your attendance, participation. We'll dig into Hebrews chapter 10 starting next week. See you then. What was the name?